Hello Life Changers, thank you so much for joining us. We have got an amazing word for you, so why don't you lean in, grab a notebook and pen, and get ready for what God has to say to you today. We are in week two of our, our series called The Heart of This, and, uh, and last week we had three amazing sevens preachers, and I was a little nervous that I wouldn't have a job uh, this week, but uh, they let me have one more go at this and we'll see how we go. But we are in this incredible series called The Heart of This. It's taken out of the, the, the central text, Luke chapter 15. And if you are familiar with Luke chapter 15, there's this narrative that Jesus is telling successive parables um, to a, a, an audience that has made up a mixture of different people. In the audience, you have got um, three types of people. You have got the despised tax collectors. You've got the outcasts, the notorious sinners that Luke has gone to as uh, at odds to tell us that they are notorious sinners. And thirdly, You've got the so-called in-crowd, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elite who are standing with arms folded at the distance trying to suss out this Jesus type and what is drawing all these people towards him. And then Jesus in this moment is he's trying to explain, it's his, it's his mission, he's trying to, it's his mandate, he's trying to show us why he has come to earth. And in Luke chapter 15 he tells these successive parables of why he has come. In a sense, he is trying to pull back the lays and show the, the outcasts, the despised, and the so-called in-crowd all at once to show them what the heart of the Father is truly like. He's wanting to show them the heart of this, and he's wanting to show them why he did what he did. So Jesus then tells three stories. The first of them is he tells of a shepherd who had a hundred sheep but lost one. And, and the scandal of all scandals says the shepherd left the 99 to pursue the one that was lost. And in this moment, in this narrative, he is trying to remind us, and I believe he's preaching to you and I, that you th for all of us here, you think you're too far gone, you haven't escaped the, the length of his grace. His grace will always pursue you to the very end. When you feel that you have gone over the edge, and you say, there's no way back, I'm going to tell you, his grace goes further still. The second story tells is of a lady who had 10 coins, and one of them was lost in her house. And then she took up, she was she, and in one sense, she put the nine that she had aside, and she turned the house upside down. She turned the sofas up. She looked behind the cupboard, looked behind the TV, and she looked everywhere until she found that lost coin. And the point of that story, I believe, is he's saying that maybe though you might feel lost or maybe you feel misplaced, maybe you feel outside of the grip of God's hand, let me tell you, even though the coin was lost, it never lost its value. The coin was still valuable. I want to tell you the value of your life is not determined on where you are right now. It's on the fact that he is still seeking you. He's still pursuing you. He won't give up. And then comes a third story where he tells the story of a prodigal son, a son who wished his father was dead, took his inheritance early, ran off, lived in a far country, wasted all that the father had lived his whole life to acquire in a matter of days, and he found himself coming to his senses when all of that ran out. There was nothing left in the checking account, and he had to find himself at the lows of lows in a pig pen, gazing longingly at their food and wishing I could go home and maybe even be a servant to my father's house. And then he went home, rehearsed his speech, but instead of meeting a father who was angry, vindictive, or wanting to measure out some form of punishment or restoration process, he met a father who said, I'm going to lavish my love on you. I'm going to welcome you back in as a son from the get-go. Scandalous. And I think that story is telling us that maybe you're here today, you feel like you've wasted that opportunity. You've wasted that season. You've wasted that inheritance. You've wasted your life on some pleasures that you thought would give you something, but they've actually come up empty. And you think, what have I done? I've wasted all of this. I want to tell you, he can restore completely what you have stolen, what you have given away, what you have lost. 
These are beautiful parables that Jesus is telling. But then I want to tell you and introduce you to the title of my sermon today. It's called The Fourth Story. Because let me tell you, so often we're told that Jesus tells three parables here. But I want to tell you that actually he tells four parables. And I want us to zone in the fourth parable because as we read this narrative, let me tell you, I love those narratives. They bring such courage and comfort in every season to my soul. But I want to tell you, as I preach this, I think all of us would say amen and say, I love being the one sheep that he'll come after. Mm. I think I'm the first one to say, I love being the fact that he, I am that lost coin of value that he will pursue and find. And yes, he, I am. And we love the fact that I'm the prodigal son coming home, not to punishment, but to a party. Oh, wonderful. But let me tell you, Jesus was actually a masterful storyteller. He told all of those stories, not as ends in themselves, but actually to get us to the last quarter. He's setting us up for the last final blow to the crowds as they gather around him. And this is what we want to read because at, at our house, because of load shedding, our electric gate motor has got really, uh, is not compliant anymore. So when we leave now, it's lost its, it's, lost its vuma, it's lost its power. And, then, and often when, you, when, I'm, when you're in a bit of a rush, you open the gate and you're sitting there and you're looking through your rear view mirror. The first three quarters of our gate just moves at a rapid pace. And then it hits that last quarter. Bam! And it feels like it's an eternity until it ekes its way to the end. end. And I tell you, I've had countless moments where I've almost crashed into that last quarter. Because I see the gate opening at a pace, I know the timing of it, and I put it in reverse, and I'm about to go back, and then I see the gate, I'm like, whoa, gate! The gate's not fully open. And I think actually too often we're caught out by that last quarter, the unseen quarter, the last part of the story that Jesus is wanting us to make sure we see the very essence of it. So let's read scripture and get to that story together today. It's in Luke chapter 15. If you've got your Bibles, I'd love you to turn there. Luke chapter 15, and it's from verse... 25, but let me just read from verse 24, the last little bit of verse 24, as it lands the prodigal son narrative, it says this, so the party began. And if you want to know a, a great description of Christianity 101, there it is. So the party began. That is what Christianity is. And yet around the world, I see a lot of Christianity looking like a whole bunch of people who've sucked a whole lot of lemons. A lot of critical, angry people who just were filling seats and doing time and pointing fingers. But this is the description it says, and the party began. And if you want to know why, have, if that's the description of what Christianity 101 should look like, how has it got to this? Well, I want to introduce you to the fourth story. Verse 25 says this, Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Why don't we pray a long, earnest, and eloquent prayer together? 
Jesus, speak to us. Amen. You see, in this reality, we see this narrative. The fourth story tells us that instead of dancing and rejoicing, instead of feasting and celebrating, instead of cranking up the tunes and enjoying the party that had begun, the older brother was sitting and sulking. And for time's sake today, I want to help us understand three things that kill the joy of our salvation. Three things that kill the joy of our salvation. The fourth story, number one, I want to introduce it to you tonight, today. Of three things in our rear view mirror that we have to get perspective on. We're going to crash into the gate. We're going to crash into it and not understand the joy that God has for us. Number one, it's the seat of compromise. It's the seat of compromise, something that I would like to call the rocking chair, people. And as we sit in the seat of compromise, this reality, instead of entering into the joy, the party, entering into the fullness of, of what Christianity 101 is, the party began. Too often, I find people, including myself, taking a seat in the seat of compromise. And it's the seat of compromise where you're in and then you're out. You're in and then you're out. If this was in the back seat of your car, I tell you the tune that you'll be listening to is the hit single of Katy Perry that says, You're hot and you're cold. You're in and you're out. You're yes and you're no. You're up and you're down. And that's the extent of my Katy Perry knowledge, right there. But that's the reality of the seat of compromise. It's a seat that we lean back in and then there's moments where we're in and then there's moments where we're out. It's determined by the tides, determined by the state of our being, determined by how we are feeling in the moment and we're wondering why we're not enjoying the joy that God has for us because we've entered into compromise. Some, we, we're saying we, we're in on the kingdom of God but on the weekends I'm going to live as if I don't. I'm in for the, what God has got for me but I'm going to Live differently in the week when it comes to my financial state. I'm just going to move things around. I'm, I'm in, but my sexuality is out. God, don't touch that. It's called the seat of compromise. And I want to tell you the reality of the seat of compromise, how it slips in and distorts the joy that God has got for you and I, is the fact that it gets us to put our eyes on ourselves. And the, the, the modus operandi of the, the seat of, of compromise is that we will end up slipping into self effort to keep ourselves in because the further back we go we feel guilty but now I've got to come back and I've got to please God so I've got to put lots of effort to get back on the front foot but that momentum will always throw you backwards this is the reality that actually we're never brought into this reality of self-righteousness because this is what the seat of compromise disguises itself as self-righteousness because I want to show, my, when, I'm, when I'm in, I'm going to show them really in. And it's exhausting because I've got to show people and I've got to show God that I really am retrying God. I'm doing well. But then when we go back, we realize, we realize I can't. I'm too flawed. I'm too failed. I can't do this. And we just fall back into temptation and guilt. And then to pull ourselves back out takes a whole lot of more effort to get ourselves back in. I've got to pray certain prayers. I've got to achieve certain things. I've got to get back into God. I'm so sorry. I'm terrible. I'm back. Let me serve you, God. And then temptation comes and we're back into it again. And it's exhausting. Anybody out there? Let me tell you, we've got a five-year-old daughter who has discovered something called the mirror. Now let me tell you, if you've seen her mother, if you've seen her, you'll know that they're really beautiful people. But Olivia has realized that she's, she, she likes the way she looks. And often she'll come to us in the middle of the night to tell us uh, with excuses of why she can't fall asleep straight away and she's got this problem, that problem. But I'm telling you, sometimes she'll come and she'll start talking to us about why she can't go to sleep yet and then her eyes will catch the mirror. And she'll start talking slower and she'll forget what she's saying. 
He's looking at himself. I'm like, Livy, what is the excuse this time? Uh, um, I, need, I need a glass of water. Just, it's this self-obsession. It's, and, it's, and it's not just a five-year-old's problem. Like I tell you, we are pre-wired to this. We pre-wired this. You just have to go onto your phone, and you have to go through the photo album. You'll see a picture of a cat. You'll see a meme, a picture of your breakfast, and then you'll see photo of yourself, photo of yourself, photo of yourself, photo of yourself. We are pre-wired to be self-obsessed. And I remember the advert back in, I think it was in the late 90s, for Oxycutum. I don't know if anybody who was a teenager in the 90s will remember this advert. It was about the fact that a young guy would go in, and he'll be walking with confidence until you turn his face, and you realize he's got a lobster on his cheek. It was a, instead of a pimple, it felt like it was a small pimple, but for him it was this lobster that everyone was shying away from and was nervous to talk about him, and he was walking around like that. And, and I'm telling you, when, if you've ever dealt with a teenager, you realize they can come in and they can be the most self-confident. They can be the most uh, accessible. They can be on the front foot. But when they've got one pimple, all confidence goes. Just looking down. Don't, don't look at that area. And that's what compromise does to us. It robs us of our confidence. It robs us of our ability to see Jesus. It robs us of our joy because it gets us looking at ourself and how do I get back in. Let me tell you, this is what I have to tell you, that you and I, my encouragement prophetically to you and I, is we need to smash the mirrors. If you want to know the cure for compromises, smash the mirrors, replace them with windows. Look out. Look out from yourself. Look out. Look away from your sin. Look away from your disqualification. Look away from this and learn to see something else. It's called His righteousness, not your own. You see, the the world will preach and the law will preach that you defeat compromise. Try harder. Let me tell you all that trying harder does gives you more momentum and to fall further back. Actually, your self-efforts will actually lead you to more disqualification in the long run. So we trust his righteousness alone and lean fully into his righteousness, not our own. You see, here's the reality for you now. I want to tell you that too many Christians are caught in this battle. They think that this is some cosmic battle that's going on between us and sin. And yes, we must put to death the, the desires of the flesh. Yes, but let me tell you, we're putting them to death, not from a place of battle, but from a place of victory. He has won the battle against sin and death. And here's the thing. You are not just here to mark 70, 80 years fighting sin. That's part of it, but that's too low a barrier when actually you've been called to something much higher. Too many Christians aren't walking into joy because they've picked up some moralistic, therapeutic deism when we're called to follow Jesus. Let me tell you, here's the reality that he became, the very, he became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Let me remind us that I have to remind this to my, my own fickle heart because I forget too often I forget about the fourth story in my heart that this is lurking in the corner of my heart that actually as much as I say and profess that this is what I'm about, I believe in in Jesus' death on the cross for me, as much as I say, yes, your blood is enough, yes, I forget so often. So often my life will be that momentum, but that last quarter will get me every time if I don't give attention to it and I slip into some form of compromise and bartering with God and it robs me of the joy of my salvation. You see, when he died on the cross, we are told the great exchange. The great exchange is this, is that he, he became our sin. And I love this reality. It doesn't say he put on our sin. No, it says he became our sin. Jesus became our sin. He became your pornography addiction. He became your gambling habits. He became your anger. He became your resentment and bitterness. He became your broken story. He became everything that was done to you and everything that you did to others. He became your sin And here's the best part. It says, so that we could become his righteousness. 
not just put on his righteousness. Compromise says, I, when I'm feeling good, I'm putting on his righteousness. But then I've sinned, I'm slipping out of it. Now I need to get back into his righteousness. No, understand the righteousness of Jesus is that he has put it on you. He has changed your DNA. You are his righteousness. And we've got to learn to see his righteousness, not our own, if we're going to be able to stand instead of sitting in the seat of compromise. Because this is what the father says to the son. The older brother comes in, he says, all of this has always been yours. How scandalous is it that the majority of the Christendom around the world are working for something that is already theirs. They're working for God's pleasure. They're working for God to say, well done. They're working for God to say, I love you. When God says, I've already done that for you, enter in. The seat of compromise will keep us away from joy. Secondly, I want to introduce you to something I like to call the seat of comfort. Oh, this is a lovely one. This is one of my favorite ones. And if this one is in your house, I want to tell you this is the sort of reality, the backseat of your car. You'll put your feet up, you'll cross your legs, you'll close your eyes, and you'll hear the song, Don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right. And this seat is comfortable. This seat is it's perfect for the afternoon nap. The sleep is perfect for, to, to dull the senses, to relax, to, to loll back and just, uh, just come on, relax, man. Sure, there's lots going on, but oh, just be passive. Just be passive and relax. But I want to tell you the danger of this seat is the reality for you and I is that we have to remind our hearts that we are living with an urgency towards the end. That actually this, this seat will get us and rob us of our joy because we'll start to think that the end of this life, this seat will say is to please, to, to work for joy, work for it, get there. This seat will say, just relax. Just relax. You don't have to actually do anything. There's no urgency in your heart. And it's just as subtle because I want to tell you that we are living with an understanding of wartime living. I love the narrative of when, in World War II when all the men went out to fight the battle against tyranny, against the, 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 the Nazi Third Reich regime, and they went out to their masses. They left a vacuum back home. And I love the fact that the ladies didn't sit back and say, relax, don't worry about a thing. I'm sure we'll hear good news. No, the ladies realized that everything also changes for them. The women who were left behind, let me tell you, six, over six million women in the United States in that era took jobs in factories in the U.S., and a lot of them were making machinery and weaponry to send to the front lines. And there's a demand that changes when we understand that there's a wartime living. And this is the problem, though, is if you go and you flip back into the narratives of the Old Testament, you'll encounter a king named David, a man of Goliath fame, a man who has done incredible things for God and for his people, and there seems there's just an anointing on his life. But this seat is a seducer of even the bravest and the brightest. The seat of comfort will get in there because in the book of Samuel tells us, it says, in the springtime, when kings went to war, David stayed at home. In the springtime, when kings went to war, David plonked himself down. Not this year. You know, I've had a a hectic run. I have had a hectic run. And let me tell you, the seat of comfort will always lead you back to the seat of compromise. You see, when David stayed at home, it was on the back of that. When he was not doing what kings should have been doing, it led him to having an affair with another man's wife called Bathsheba. 
And that was the moment where things started to go awry for him. But I want to remind us that we were made for mission. If you want to know why there's no joy in your salvation, no joy in what your Christianity, the party it does not seem to be beginning. You're feeling like, why is this happening to me? What, what is, there's got to be more than this. I want to tell you, yes, there is. That actually you and I were made to see dead things come alive. The father said, we have to, in that story of the parable, said, we have to celebrate because the son who was dead is now alive. The lost son was now found. If you want to know what you are here for, you are not here to mark time, get that retirement fund, make sure that you live a nice 2.5 white picket fence type of Christianity. Just make it, just be moralistically better than your neighbor and let's get to the end. What a boring existence. And it will steal your joy. Let me tell you, every advert, every promise of, 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 the, of, of social media saying, just get this and you'll get happy. Just get this and you'll be okay. Just get that is seducing you into, into a state of lacking joy. The seat of comfort will just kill your joy. It will masquerade as temporary happiness, but it will kill your joy. You see, we were made to see dead things come alive. You know, I'm telling you, I think too many people I don't understand that the reality is that we have got the favor of God. We have been poured up and we've been filled up with the favor of God. Today, right now, the favor of God is upon you because of Jesus Christ. He, he wants to pour his favor, his anointing, his presence on you. But a lot of us are living in this state, and this is cool, it's wonderful, and we're sipping at it. Mm. High quality H2O right there. But here's the reality is this is how you and I were actually made to live. Our existence was never made to stay in this place of comfort for ourselves. It was made to pour out of us. It was made to find, not find, find an end in us. Because here's the good news. As we pour ourselves out for the sake of others, as we live with a sense of mission for the gospel, can I tell you, the Father says, oh, I found a vessel. I can keep pouring. I can keep pouring. If you want more favor from God, if you want more anointing, this is really hard to do. Just help me out here with two hands. I wish I had three or four. But this is the reality. If you want more favor, if you want more anointing, it comes in the form shape of opportunity. What will you do with it? Will you give it away? And the Father says, I found a willing vessel. I'm going to keep pouring. The more you keep stepping out, the more you keep giving away, you can never stay in his debt. You can never stay in God's, uh, God saying he owes me. No, God said, I'll keep pouring in. I'll keep pouring in. Because this is how we're supposed to live. Not in comfort, storing things up, but in pouring things out for the gospel. Let me see this one out. Bless you, Fiona. Wow. But this is the reality for you and I. Can I tell you, we've been seduced. And I tell you, that is a place of joy. That is the place of joy of salvation. If you've lost your joy, stand up from the seat of comfort today. I call you to do that. Thirdly and finally, I want to tell you to one of the most sinister and the most easily disguised seats in the back seat of your car, the fourth quarter that, will, that, is, that has killed the joy of so many saints before us. It's called the seat of criticism. And this is a high seat. This is a high seat because it's a little higher than everyone else. And it's seductive because this one looks like you're on the front foot. I've been working in the field. I haven't gone as far as that guy. I've been here, God, for a long time, working, giving. I have tithed every year, haven't missed it. And yet, hey, whoa, whoa, how come that guy's getting blessed and I'm not? And, and you don't know what's happened. This, the theme song of this one is this. It's too late to apologize. It's too late. Why? Because I've seen too much. That person 
that organization, that boss, that pastor, that friend, I've seen too much. I know, I've seen behind the curtain. I, I've seen behind the curtain. Let me tell you, when I first came to Life Change Church in 2010, I had this rose-tinted view of what church was. I love church because I'd sat there and I'd seen amazing things and people preach and God move. And I'm like, wow, these men and women of God are incredible. I want to be one of them. And then, like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, I saw behind the curtain. And I saw it was just little people on bikes pedaling very hard, trusting a very faithful God, but messing up a lot of the time and not keeping their words, not being, the, not being true to what they said. What they said on the pulpit sometimes didn't match what they lived. And I was like, this sucks. And I've made the seat a little bit higher. I was like, wow, I'm, I'm much more godly than those guys. Or so I thought. And the seed of criticism is subtle because it's not out there. It's not overt. It's not easily to spot, but it creeps into your heart. And this thing is a killer. Let me tell you the reality of this is that the Bible says this about the older brother. It says the older brother was filled with anger and he wouldn't go in. He was filled with anger bitterness and he wouldn't go in too many christians are sitting outside of the joy that god has for them too many christ followers are sitting outside of the periphery of the joy of salvation because they've set up a seat of criticism against somebody else of bitterness of offense of resentment and they've justified it. and let me tell you 99.5 percent of the time is probably justified until you measure it up against the cross of jesus christ and what you've been forgiven and then 100 percent of the times it's not justified but more than that, it's killing your joy. It's killing your joy. This is the reality. Heaven is where everyone is forgiven. Hell is where nobody's forgiven. So when we forgive, we pull heaven down into our lives. And when we withhold forgiveness, we pull hell up into our lives. Enter into my joy. This is the reality. In, in the 1980s and 1986, to be exact, there was this nuclear accident that you will be aware of called Chernobyl, where this, 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 this nuclear power plant near the city of Pripyat in the north of the Ukrainian, so, of the, in the Soviet Union, exploded in this nuclear reactive uh, state. And this radical reality was this was the moment. The Soviet Union and all its power and its might that was going, it was ex expanding at a rapid rate, found its demise. This was the start of its demise was the Chernobyl disaster. And scientists have traced what went wrong. It was, they, they said actually the very essence of the Chernobyl disaster was a cheap $15 measuring device that was faulty. Brought the might of the Soviet nation to its knees. Let me tell you, it's a little quarter that we fail to understand about bitterness in our heart, about criticism in our heart, about resentment in our heart, and we think it's justified. I'm telling you, it feels like it's small. It feels like $15. What will that do? Can I tell you? It'll bring the might and the power of what God wants to do in and through you to your knees, and it'll steal your joy. It'll kill your joy. You see, in the Old, in the old Covenant, the priests were not allowed to minister if they had scabs on them. If they had any scabs, it's this weird understanding. When you read the Old Covenant, it says, priests who have scabs must be not allowed to come into the, the temple of God. What a bizarre rule. Hey, sounds weird. Until you realize that God said this. He had this principle that he wanted. He said that he did not want his priests to be ministering out of their woundedness. He didn't want them to minister out of things that weren't healed. 
And I think too many people are wondering why there's no power in my walk, there's no uh, evidence in my faith, there's no reality in what I say and what I speak to people, and there's no joy, is because we haven't allowed ourselves to be healed. We've, start, we've been happy to stay on our high horse, looking down, when God says, actually, I want you to get off the seat of criticism. Get off the seat of bitterness. Get off the seat of resentment and enter into my joy. I want to tell you today, this is how you lose the joy of salvation. You sit too long in the seat of compromise. You sit too long in the seat of comfort. You sit too long in the seat of criticism. You see, there's this call around the world at the moment saying, hey, the world has gone crazy. It's time for the church to stand up. And it's said in this militant voice, stand up against the ungodly tyranny. Stand up against this regime. Stand up against this theology. Stand up against this belief system. Stand up, church. Ah. And let me tell you, can I tell you all that will do? It will get us finding our seats in different places. Because let me tell you, if we, we're not called to stand up as some moralistic crusaders. We're supposed to stand up for the mission of Jesus. And when Jesus was faced with the outcasts, the despised, and the so-called in, he did not come and give them the new retelling of the law. And this is why I have come. No, he said, I have come for the, night, for the one that's gone astray. I've come for the coin that is lost. I've come for the son that's run very far. And I've come even for you, you, who you, 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 in your state of comfort, of criticism, of compromise, I've come to call you back to your mission. Will you stand up? Stand up for what God is calling us to and watch the joy flood back into your life. This is the reality I want to tell you today. Jesus left the throne of heaven to stand in our place. His rightful seat of authority, rightful seat of eternity past, he left that and left the stage of heaven and stepped down into our earth, stepped down into our place. And the Bible said he stood in our place. He became our sin. He became our shame. He became the seduction of our hearts. He became the scandal. He became our sorrows. He embraced the fullness of our defeat so we could be clothed in his victory. He stood when we had no, no ability to stand on our own. And here's the reality. In Acts chapter 7, there's this narrative where Stephen is being stoned at the hands of angry men, angry religious figures. And the Bible tells us that Stephen looks up and he sees a vision of heaven. And Stephen sees a vision of him and he says, I see the Son of God, Jesus. It says this, standing at the right hand of the Father. The one who has, the, he has he's been seated in heavenly places, the one who's got the, seated at the right hand of the Father. But at this moment, when his Son was standing for him, the Son of Jesus was standing for him. This is what heaven is doing. Heaven is standing at this moment, watching the response of the church. And will we rise at this moment, not in some moralistic fervor, not in some beating of our chest, but say, God, what beats in your heart will beat in ours. We'll burn for that. So I want to ask you in this moment, do you stand physically in this room? Can we stand? Today, I felt this burning in my heart that we are fighting for joy. This is a house of joy. And then when prodigals come, people who have run far, people who don't live like us, people who, who sin worse than us, or people who think they're way too far gone, walk in here, they'll meet the kindness of Jesus. They won't meet a people with an outstretched finger, you need to do X, Y, and Z. They'll meet a family who are standing and say, come and enter into his joy. This is what my prayer for us is. This is who we are, and this is who I'm calling us to be reminded of, that we will stand so others will encounter him. As we stand, I want to tell you that we are trusting to fill this room 
with double these seats. And I'm trusting that actually as you've stood today, that you're not saying this is my seat. You actually, as I stand, I'm in a scene saying, God, I'll stand on your mission so others may fill these seats. That others may fill. I'm gonna, but it's not just the physical standing. It's saying, God, I'm standing away from compromise to remind myself that I burn for your mission. I'm going to stand out of comfort. I burn for your mission. I stand out of, out of criticism because I'm not going to keep the, an account of something that's already been forgiven. When there's a greater story, smash the mirrors, put windows, we're going for the gospel. This is joy. This is Christianity. I wish I could beg you and plead with you. Do not, do not be suckered into these temptations. Let's live with a bigness of heart. Today, I want to tell you today, there is a man named Jesus who left the 99 for you. This man named Jesus, who's been seeking relentlessly for you. It's a man named Jesus who died to restore completely what was stolen from you. He says, as you receive that, will you do likewise? Come and live on the front edge of the gospel. As we stand, why don't you lift your hands? I want to pray a blessing on you as a people as we, as we land. Father, I thank you, Father, as hands are lifted, as people stand, I thank you today. There is an unseating of spiritual powers and demonic principalities in our lives. That we are not just doing a glorified TED talk here. This is not just a moment where we like, oh cool, that sounds good, let's try something different. No, there's a moment of faith, activation here. As we stand, I thank you, Father God, compromise is unseated in our lives. As we stand, I thank you, Father, now people who are dabbling with things on the internet they shouldn't are unseated. I thank you, God, as we stand, I thank you that powers and principalities of darkness are unseated, that we give you the authority. We give you the right to speak into our lives. As we stand, forgiveness flows. We don't have to nurse it, rehearse it. We don't have to go over it again. We just release what that person did. What Release what that family member said. Release what that friend withheld from us. We release it because I'm entering into your joy. I thank you as we stand, I thank you, Father God, at church are stepping back into mission. We are moving forward to see the kingdom of God come. We're not going to be involved in trivialities. We're not going to be involved in small things, superficial things, insignificant things. We're going to pick up the mission of God, the heart of this, that you came to seek and save that which is lost. So, Father, as hands are raised right now, I thank you that you meet us at our point of need. We receive your forgiveness. We receive your grace. We receive your empowering. I thank you right now, Father. I pray afresh for Peter. I thank you, this man that you sent and marked to go and minister into the prisons. I thank you, Father God. Give him fresh eyes of grace, not just to see duty, not just to see a roster. Not to, I thank you, freshness to see this is the mission of God. I thank you, Father God, right now, I pray for business owners right now with the demands of salaries and, and, and payroll and, and, and economics. God, I thank you right now. Would you remind them, I've placed you there for the mission of God. Mission of God. I gave you that boss for the mission of God. I gave you that skill for the mission of God. I thank you, Father God, even those who are in the greatest trial of their lives in battling health situations, relational challenges. I thank you, Father God, even right now. You're not exempt from that moment. You're saying that is in the hand of a, the greatest missionary who will use it for the glory of God. I thank you, Father God, even for marriages here. Marriages in this room, Father God, not just doing time together, not just ticking off the years, waiting for an anniversary. I pray, awaken marriages back to the mission of God. 
That is where joy is. Joy is not on that cruise ship. Joy is not in that holiday one day win. Joy is not in the retirement plan. No, joy is saying we'll enter in onto his mission. We will stand up for what he has called us to. I declare this over marriages. I declare this over students. I declare this over single people. I declare this over this church. We'll be a church that refuse, refuse to sit in comfort, refuse to sit in the seat of mockers, to refuse to sit in criticism, to refuse to sit in compromise, but pick up the great call of God. We throw down the white picket fence of Christianity, of religion, and we pick up the danger and circle path of obedience, saying, yes, to you are king. We love you, Jesus. Would your grace be upon us, your favor be upon us, and would the world know that there is a king who is unseated, who is enthroned forever. And we love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to take your next step or find out what is happening in the life of the church, head over to our website or follow us on social media. Cheers.